You could spend the weekend doing the same old whatever, or you could conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Welcome back to the MLB.com StatCast podcast. I'm your host, Mike Petriello. Here with me, Matt Myers, MLB.com national editor. Matt, how are you? I'm well, Mike. How are you? I'm doing great. Uh, We're going to get right to our guest in just a second. First, a a quick story. Uh, Listeners of the show know that we do a show called MLB Plus. It's pretty cool, and we look at games. We broadcast games from kind of a a statistical point of view. And uh, a couple weeks ago, we were doing a Cubs-Mets game. I think it was July 1st, and the game had been rain-delayed a couple times, and the Mets had crushed the ball, and it was like 10-1 in the seventh inning. You know, it's the kind of game where you're like, let's hopefully something interesting happen. We want to get to the end of the game here, et cetera, et cetera. And uh, the Mets brought in a, a rookie making his major league debut, and his name was Seth Lugo. We honestly didn't know all that much about him, and uh, we watched him pitch, and we were fascinated. He threw a curveball that struck out Anthony Rizzo, and not only did it strike him out, it actually hit him in the back foot, which was, you don't see that that often. And we looked at the data afterwards, and it turned out that pitch was the third highest spin curveball uh, on record on StackCast history from this year and last year. And we saw that, and we're like, well, that's fascinating. we got to talk to that guy. So that's exactly what we've done. Joining us on the phone right now from the New York Mets is Seth Lugo. Seth, how are you? Good. I'm doing great. Seth, i, I got to ask you about that curveball. Uh, so you struck out Anthony Rizzo, and obviously Anthony Rizzo is not just any hitter. He's going to get some love in the MVP voting this year. Did you know right away that the ball had hit him in the foot after he missed it, or did you only kind of notice that afterwards? Actually, I did see it. I did notice it hit him. <laughs> Have you ever had that happen before? What's that? Have you ever had that happen before? Strike out a guy on um, a pitch that hit him? <laughs> actually, I don't. I don't think so. I think that was the first time. So was that pitch? Obviously, you know, it's the first time Reed really got to see you pitch. Was that pitch kind of like the best possible version of your curve, or was that really just the standard Seth Lugo curveball? Um, I like to think uh, I get that much break on it a lot of times. <laughs> <laughs> That was it. Was a good one. It was a good one. So you know, as I said, it was a, an incredibly high spin curveball. So we had tracked here at uh, almost 3,500 RPMs. Uh, average curveballs in the 24, 2,500 range. And uh, going back, and you have, you've obviously pitched since then. Your average is uh, over 3,300, and it's kind of by far the best above Garrett Richards, above Jesse Han. Han. And uh, I'm curious, do you do you know anything about the spin rate? Like, did the Mets talk about that with you? Is that something you were kind of aware of before you came up? Yeah, actually, uh, our uh, farm director, Ian Levis, we we had a discussion on it uh, quite a few times. I was messing around with it in Las Vegas and couldn't get very much break on it. So I, I talked about it quite a few times. Is there anything that you do to kind of create that spin? You know, is it is it all natural? Is there something specific that you do with your grip or your motion? Or um, I don't think so. I think it's pretty standard. I, I've just been going for a long time. I, I don't think it's anything special. Now, obviously, you, you must, I assume, kind of, you know, compare notes with friends and other pitchers and everything. And, you know, what is it, if, if it's not on purpose to get such spin, obviously you're doing something that makes that curve drop so much. Uh, I've actually got a, 11 inches of vertical drop in the big league so far, which is the third best. Uh, is it? Is there anything that you know of with the, the, the grip or just your natural hand motion? No, um, I've, I've talked to other guys about their curveball grips, and that's pretty much the same as most guys. Um, I think I just got really long fingers. Maybe I just get on top of it really good. Yeah, it's fascinating that you say that because I've actually I've, I haven't talked to Garrett Richards, who has fantastic curves, but I've heard him say that too. He says he thinks he's got extremely long fingers, uh, and that leads to spin. And I don't know if that's actually backed up by science, but it's you're now the second one who's kind of said that, and I think it's interesting. 
Uh, obviously, we don't have any way to measure finger length, and I don't think we're ever going to get there, but that's kind of, it's nice to know that there's someone else who says that, and maybe that's something, you know, worth exploring on our end, right? Yep. Yeah, that's the only thing I can think of. <laughs> <laughs> Seems reasonable. Now, uh, Seth, you know, in, in, your, in your, your weeks with the, with the Mets and their major league pitching staff, has there, has there been anything that you've worked on specifically? You know, for example, I know their pitching coach, Dan Worthen, is sort of famous for the Worthen slider. Is there anything along those lines that you've been, you've been messing around with to sort of, like, enhance your repertoire? Um, not, not, not a whole lot. Uh, mainly just, just repeating what I'm doing, just keeping my mechanics crisp. Uh, not, nothing new changed. Uh, back in spring training, he worked with me, changed a grip on a few of my pitches. But since I've been up here... It's all just been what I've been working on for the last few months. And when when you said you changed some of the grip on your pitches, did you notice a difference in uh, in the performance of those pitches after that? Well, um, when I come into spring training, I changed grip on my two seamer and my slider, and uh, it did mess with a change up grip. I ended up scrapping that and going back to my old one. But I don't know if it was uh, well the, the new grips. I did like the new grips, but also that was my first time pitching with Major League Baseballs, so I don't know. So I, I think that's an interesting uh, a topic that maybe the listeners don't know about. What is the difference between major league baseballs and say uh, you know minor league or college baseballs? Well, the the seams are more consistent. Everybody picked up; they feel the exact same. And uh, also, you can tell it's a little tighter wound, a little firmer, and um, it's a little slicker too. It's you know, a little tougher to get a grip. So do the balls vary? Do you find the balls vary from each minor league, or is there consistent minor league baseball? Uh, the mi minor league baseball is. Uh, Every ball, you can tell the seams are a little different, a little higher, a little lower. Uh, different spots will be raised up. They're they're a lot more inconsistent. So when you were in the in the minors, I think you were mostly a starting pitcher, and they kind of moved you to the bullpen a little bit before you were promoted. Uh, and our scouting reports, at least the ones I read, said that as a starter, you were touching 90, 91, 92. Uh, as a reliever, we have you as high as uh, as 96.6, almost 97. Is that entirely due to the differences between being a starter and a reliever that you can kind of go all out for an inning or two, or is there more to it than that? Um, well, as a starter, I would uh, I would I would save that that good fastball for uh, a strikeout situation or a guy that's late on it, and I'd only show the good one maybe five to six times a game, something like that. But out of the bullpen, uh, you know, I'm, they, they want me to get, you know, it's obviously I'm facing less batters and more pressure situations. So that and the adrenaline coming out, I think uh, helps me just go out and just let it rip every time just about. Have they told you anything about uh, which role your your future's in? No, uh, I think you know. You, like I said, you were moved to the bullpen, uh, still in the minors. But um, I think I heard rumors that you may be jumping in for a spot start this Saturday, and I don't think it's going to happen. I think Cologne is going to. But it's interesting that your name was still in that discussion. Yeah, they they didn't talk to me about that. I just I heard a few things from friends or stuff online. But as far as the organization, no, they didn't tell me anything like that. In terms of starting versus relieving, how much does your your repertoire differ uh, in terms of the like the frequency with which you you use specific pitches? Are you are you much more focused on your fastball and your curve? Specific, for example, specifically out of the pen, fastball, curve, or is it you know how is your how does your repertoire differ in each role? Um, it's kind of the same actually. Uh, I throw still throw five pitches, and um, uh, lately I could be the hitters. I'm not sure, but I've been throw. More off speed lately. I haven't, I haven't really just gone after him fastball, fastball, fastball like I would as a starter. It's, you know, cutter, curveball, 
fastball and curveball changeup. Now, one of the big changes I imagine is pitch. As we 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 discussed, Las Vegas versus City Field, and some people may not realize that there's an argument to be made that it's harder to get results in a place like Vegas than it is in the in the majors. Las Vegas and half of the Pacific Coast, league, <laughs> it's like you know, the, the, it's hot, it's windy. There's big outfields, you know, that, that high elevation. Uh, go up, sorry, yeah, go what up. did you notice specifically about what that elevation and those conditions did to your pitches in terms of how they moved or broke, etc.? Oh, uh, you, you tell it. Every time you throw a ball, it's nothing, nothing moves. I mean, you throw a sinker and it, it's straight as a four seamer. Uh, change up, you can't get any arm side run, curveballs. I was leaving it, all my curveballs up in the zone. It was really tough to use it. I almost had to. If I wanted to be successful, I had to quit throwing curveball. I couldn't, couldn't bounce it in the dirt. It's it's tough to pitch in that league. It was, it was really tough. Yeah, I think when uh, when you came up, fans probably you know they just looked at the the stats and they saw an ERA of six and a half, and they're probably saying, oh, you know, what's this guy? But I don't. I imagine the Mets probably told you when you got there, you know, this is not a great park for pitching. We're not going to judge you on this or that, right? What did they tell you that they'd actually be looking at? Well, um, it was like a two or three weeks before uh, I got called up. Um, our pitching coordinator was in town, and uh, I'd gotten away from my curveball and. Throwing more of a cutter, and you know, I told him, hey, "Hey, what got you here was your fastball command and your curveball." And we know it's not working that good uh, in the PCL, but you need to get back to throwing it, even if you know, they're going to hit it. So keep working on your curveball, keep working on your sinker, and stop trying to pitch differently than you had your whole career. So we want you to go back to what you've been doing in the past. Okay. Is Las Vegas the toughest park you've ever had to pitch in? And if not, what is? Um, yeah, it was it was definitely Las Vegas, <laughs> and then uh, besides that, it would be um, El Paso and Reno. <laughs> yeah, I think that's just all good. the teams that we play a lot in that league. That's those are the toughest parts I've ever played at. Yeah, and you, you throw an Albuquerque in there too, and it just goes to show that entire league. It's really hard to kind of to look at the the stat line there. I think the uh, the Las Vegas pitchers as a as a group, have the worst ERA in the Pacific Coast League right now, and I think that obviously it's not entirely about skill; it's about the environment. Uh, this is—I have to ask you. This is the New Yorker and me coming out. You briefly pitched for uh, for Brooklyn here a, a couple years ago when you were coming back from surgery, and uh, for fans of ours who don't know where the Brooklyn Park is, it's actually on Coney Island. It's attached to the boardwalk. It's right on the beach. What was it like living in Coney Island? It's a real weird place sometimes. Yeah. Uh, what was the question? <laughs> well, you you, uh, you pitched for Brooklyn, the Brooklyn Cyclones area in A-ball uh, when you were coming back from your surgery. And uh, so obviously that's a place that we know very well living in the city here. And I'm just curious, what was it like living in, in Coney Island out there? It's kind of a, one of the odder places in the city. Oh, uh, it was it was interesting. I remember the first day we got there, the first day we had practice before the season started, had the mermaid parade. And <laughs> that was pretty crazy. That kind of blew my mind. <laughs> Yeah. Stuff I'd never seen before. <laughs> yeah, for listeners who are unfamiliar, Mermaid Parade is, I'm not sure how I would describe it, but it's just a... Uh, it's exactly what it sounds like. Exactly. People, people dress up like mermaids, and there's a parade, and they walk down the street, and Coney Island is, I don't know, simultaneously the best and worst place in the world, depending on how you look at it. Uh, Seth, thanks so much for your time. Really appreciate it. Uh, keep an eye out for Seth. And, uh, his his high-spin curveball. His high-spin curveball. I mean, that's what I love about StatCast is, is you see things that you might not have noticed about guys. And Seth Lugo is now a name we're watching very closely. Uh, so, Seth, best luck to you, and thanks for your time. All right, thanks for having me. You know what I forgot to tell Seth Lugo about is so we, we took a, a gif of that curveball that struck at Anthony Rizzo and tweeted it out. and got good reaction from Mets fans because I think it was some information on a guy they didn't know about. But nobody tweeted it more than what I believe to be Seth Lugo's mom.
And I appreciate that. I thought Moms that was pretty the best. cool. Because I can imagine if I was doing well in the big leagues, my mom would be doing the exact same thing. <laughs> my mom might be asking what Twitter was. but Well, uh, there's, a, there's also that. Uh, but anyways, let's get just spin rate for a second because I want to talk a little about spin rate as it applies to a guy like Lugo because there's certain, certain quote-unquote truths we've discovered about spin rate. Um, but the curve is a little bit still, we're still trying to kind of figure out spin rate and exactly how it correlates to success. So kind of go through that a little bit. Yeah, I think the biggest difference to understand between the curveball and, say, a four-seam fastball is that they don't spin in the same direction, right? And if you're throwing a four-seam fastball, you get backspin, and that means uh, uh, from the pitcher's point of view, you know, the top of the ball is coming back towards you, and if you have high spin, that means it'll rise. And if you're throwing a curveball, it's... it's well, it literally rise. It's just well, right, rise in fastball, right, yeah. right. It'll sink slower. Uh, and if you're throwing a curveball, you're actually throwing it in the, the spin is the entire opposite direction. If you're looking at it from the pitcher's mound, the top is going away from you, right? And uh, so the idea is that the ball will move in the direction of the spin, and if the spin is higher, then the ball should move more. So if you have a ball that's going like directly bottom over top as far as spin goes at a high rate, it should dive. And that's what you want a curveball to do. You don't want a curveball to stay up. So where a high spin fastball will stay up a little longer, a high spin curveball should dive quicker. And that's a big difference. Now, there's obviously also the question of what direction is that spin going, right? If you have a perfect, like, say, like 12 to 6 on a clock, then that's, like, perfect spin for a curveball to dive down. If you've got it, say, maybe, you know, 3 to uh, 9 or so, that's kind of a, a hanger, and that's not great. Yeah. So that's one of the things that, you know, with, with you know, we've seen 14 fastballs, there's pretty much a... a maybe, I don't know, direct correlation between high spin and swing strikes? There is a pretty good one. Obviously, there's more to it. Like, you've also got to be able to place it properly. Yes. You know, if you throw a meatball, it's not going to matter. But we, we've, on, like, the MLB Plus shows, we've talked about it a lot. You can throw a real hard like Nathan Valdi, who has middle-of-the-road spin. It just doesn't do anything. It's fast, but it's straight, and the ball gets crushed. And then guys like uh, Marco Estrada, perfect example, doesn't really throw that hard. Throws, like, 88 miles an hour, but he's got pretty high spin. And from what I can tell, he's got, like, a perfect spin direction. So that ball stays up. He gets a ton of pop-ups. It's, it's obviously velocity is important. It gives you more margin for error. But spin rate can really be a big part of that, obviously, depending on what kind of pitch, what kind of outcome you're looking for. And so for a curveball, uh, if you have a very high spin, it's going to move a lot. And we saw that with the Anthony Rizzo pitch against Seth Lugo. That ball moved all over the place. Yeah, exactly. And Garrett Richards is a guy who shows up on this Richard, these leaderboards who has had some success with a high spin curveball when healthy. Another guy recently, Lance McCullers Jr., um, has really been really been pitching well of late. Another guy with a really high spin curveball. So there is a – we see the relationship, but it's it's still exactly unclear – Right. The correlation. And, and I, I, uh, I was interested that Lugo said he thinks he has long fingers because Richards has said that too. And it's interesting because Lugo, or excuse me, Richards doesn't just have a high spin curveball. He's kind of got high spin across the board. All of his pitches are high spin. I've asked a lot of pitchers, like, can you make spin? Can you create it? Informally, it's probably three to four or so to one saying it's natural. It's God given. I don't know how I do it. Some guys say they can manipulate it with, with grip or motion. And, and I think that's probably true to some extent. But uh, if the idea is that maybe now there's a couple guys saying, hey, I have long fingers, is that the next inefficiency? I, like, I want to measure your fingers. <laughs> it's a real weird spot to be well, in. Well, that but, was a Pedro Martinez thing is, was, was a, one of the hypotheses of the movement on his ball was his, his long fingers. As right, well, so. and I, I think that's fascinating. And, you know, you almost wonder if we're not ever going to measure, like, finger length. I, I couldn't imagine it even being possible, if not creepy. But if you're wondering where spin comes from, maybe that's part of it. Um, anyway, let's do a... Complete change of topic right. to the trade deadline because that's what most people in baseball. Trade deadline about. is Monday. We're taping the show Monday. Or excuse me, Wednesday around lunchtime. Trade deadline is Monday, so it's going to be a big weekend. So one name that's coming up a lot and it seems like he probably won't get traded is Andrew Miller. 
I don't think he's going to get traded, and I think part of that is, well, two reasons. I think part of it's because the Yankees still want to have bullpen next season. Obviously, Chapman was going to be a free agent, so that wasn't a concern. And I also think they created such expectations with that trade for Chapman. Uh, they got so much more back than I think anybody thought they'd get for a guy who was going to be a free agent that to, to trade Miller, who's not only got the remainder of this year, but also next year and also the next year, uh, $9 million a year, which is not that bad for a guy like that. I, I, what do you ask for that? Is it a Lucas Giolito? Is it Urias? Like, it's unreasonable. That, that seems like the, the where the uh, where the stalemate is, because the Nationals are the obvious fit. The Nationals have had, you know, Papelbon's been getting hit around. There's not a lot of faith in the back of that bullpen right now. So that's the, the obvious match right there is, if you assume that the Yankees are going to sell, you could argue that they could even train Chapman, their postseason odds haven't diminished they've won eight they won eight out of ten yeah. they still have lowish odds but they're not out of it so let's say they assuming they're going to sell that's the obvious fit and the nats are basically saying and obviously this is all negotiating they're saying that they're they're saying giolito uh robles trey turner yeah, joe ross joe ross and there's someone else whose name i'm forgetting Reynaldo lopez are all right. off limits right which to me is if i'm the nats i'm willing to talk i if I'm Mike Rizzo, I'm willing to make one of those guys available for Miller because I think he's the guy they need. But The Yankees have to get a guy like that after what they got for Chapman. So I think in some way, they, I don't want to say shot themselves in the foot because it's not a bad problem to have to sell a guy like Chapman for a huge return. It's going to make it real hard to trade Miller. Uh, and I don't think they will. And I, we should talk for a second about what it is that makes Miller so dominant. Right? Obviously, he throws hard. He's got a great change, uh, excuse me, slider. Uh, and he's big. You know, He's got good extension. He's this huge guy. I've talked to him in the locker room, and I'm sitting here looking like straight up because he's about a foot and a half taller than I am. Uh, but he's really mastered you know, forcing hitters to do exactly what he wants. And what I mean by that is if you're a pitcher and you throw a strike, one of the better outcomes is for the hitter not to swing at it. That's, there's no danger going to happen on that. There's no batted ball. It's, a, it's an easy call strike. And if you're a pitcher and you throw kind of a lousy ball outside the zone, you'd love the hitter to go after that because he's going to miss it or he's going to make poor contact. No one's doing that, a combination of those things like Miller is. Right? We, we just measured this today. He has the second lowest swing percentage at balls in the strike zone, a little under 52%. Uh, and the only guy better than him, Dylan Patances, the Yankees bullpen, really, really good. He has the third highest chase percentage, so swings on balls outside the strike zone, uh, just over 40%, and we're talking fractions of a point, third place behind Gregerson and Ziegler. So right there, you can see that's impressive, right? Basically, nope. free strikes. Free strikes, and yeah, I think he's got the third highest called strike percentage, right? So it's free strikes, nobody's swinging at his strikes, and they're going after the balls outside the zone, and they're missing or they're making bad contact. So that's a really, really nice place to be in, but it's actually even better than that because I went back and I looked, and we can go back to 2008 on this. If you look at the difference between those numbers, right, and every pitcher gets more swings inside the zone, I and mean, that's just the way baseball works, but ideally, the difference between those numbers is real small. You would like to get as many swings outside the zone as inside the zone, and Miller, the last two seasons, has the two lowest, you know, smallest differences. It's 11% this year, 12% last year. He's really kind of developed this skill for forcing hitters, fooling hitters to do exactly what he wants. And it's a big part of why, with only two pitches, he's really successful. Yeah, he's, uh, I mean, I, he's sort of, in a weird way, I've never thought I'd say this about a relief pitcher making $9 million a year. He's, under he's, he's one of the biggest bargains in baseball. Yes. So that deal was, what, four years and $36 million? And I remember when that deal was signed, so many people were like, he's never been a closer. He's, well, he had zero saves or one career save or whatever it is. He can't handle it. Uh, well, anyway, Mike wrote a piece about this today, so if you want more details, please check it out on Yankees.com, MLB.com. Um, but while we're talking about Miller, I think we should talk about, at least, maybe not Chapman, but the, the team that he was just traded to, because the Cubs are interesting, and there's another guy you wrote about this week that I want to get into, because uh, the Cubs are fascinating at the deadline. They just trade for Chapman. They could be trading for a starter, but the kind of guy, the linchpin of whether or not they would trade for a starter is 
Kyle Hendricks. Kyle Hendricks. So I mentioned with Miller that he had the third highest called strike percentage in baseball. And that means there are two guys ahead of him. One of them is Kyle Hendricks, right? If you look at the, the Cubs over the last 30 days, the rotation been kind of a mess. You know, I, I know ERA is not the most advanced stat, but if you look at Arietta, Lester, Hamill, and Lackey, they all have ERAs that are five or six or seven over the last month. Uh, and then you have Kyle Hendricks, a 150 ERA over the last month. This is for a guy who had to beat out Adam Warren to be the fifth starter. It's for a guy who throws about, you know, 88 to 89 miles an hour, and he's actually been shockingly good, right? And so there's three reasons for that. One is, as I mentioned, called strikes. And uh, I think the reason for that is he has one of the most pinpoint accurate release points I think I've ever seen. Like every single one of his pitches comes out of the same spot. There's no, oh, his arm's lower so I can see it's a, it's a slider or whatever the case may be. You can't really pick up on what it is until it's too late. Uh, and that's really important. The other thing is that if you look at uh, launch angle, so we talk about launch angle a lot, right? Uh, zero degrees is kind of right back at the pitcher. If it's lower than, than, than zero, you know, it's, it's going to be a grounder. If it's higher, it's going to be a line drive. Kind of up to 50 is maybe a fly ball, and then above 50 degrees is a pop-up. So if you look at between 20 degrees and 50 degrees, this is where 94% of all home runs are hit. So if you're giving up exit velocity in that launch degree zone, you're probably going to get hit hard. We have 150 guys who have given up 50 batted balls in that launch angle zone. His is the second lowest, 85 degrees. So basically what's at 85 miles an hour. So basically what's happening is when he's giving up those line drives and fly balls, he's not allowing it to be hit very hard. That's a they're skill. Not really line, That's I mean, a skill. They're not really line drives. They're softly hit fly balls. Yeah. So, and he gets a lot of grounders. So basically he's starting off with grounders and then called strikes, and then softly hit line drives and fly balls, so that's a pretty good start. And you look at the Cubs' defense. Cubs' defense is outstanding. They're number one in any of the stats you like. You know, defensive runs saved, UZR, defensive efficiency. Uh, they are number one in all of it, and a big part of that's in the outfield because you look at what's happened from last year. They got Jason Hayward. I know Jason Hayward hasn't hit very well this year. He's been everything they wanted in the outfield, and, you know, he's kind of replaced. You know, Kyle Schwarber was a big loss, but, you know, he wasn't honestly much of an outfielder. Jorge Soler's been hurt. Wasn't a great outfielder. And then we talked a lot about how they kind of moved everybody back strategically. They have a really good outfield, probably the best defensive outfield baseball. And you have a guy who's giving up softly hit line drives and fly balls. This is how Kyle Hendricks has been succeeding. It's fascinating to watch. So if the Cubs, I mean, if, the Cubs are going to the postseason, regardless if, of their There's defense. no if. They're going to go. When they go to the postseason, how does their rotation line up? Because the question is, some people would think that they need to get a, another starter. But if they do, is it really that Hendricks should be the odd man out? Unless there's an injury Arietta is starting that first game. Like, I cannot imagine any scenario where it's not going to be him. I think the, the concern for people is a guy who doesn't miss a ton of bats like Hendricks, like, can you get by with, with a pitch-to-contact guy because, you know, one bad hop in the playoffs and then everything goes to hell. I think if you're going to be looking at, at Hendricks succeeding, he's got the third-best ERA baseball. It's, it's Kershaw, Bumgarner, and Kyle Hendricks. I don't see how you can keep him out of the playoff rotation. If anything, maybe you're bumping Jason Hamill, who's already well into his usual second-half swoon, right? Yeah. You don't need five starters in the playoffs. So if you go with Arietta, Lackey, excuse me, Lester, Lackey or Hendricks in game three, maybe depending on what ballpark, what team you're facing, and then the other one in game four, you know, listen, if you can get a better upgrade for that, great. I think I'm okay with that. Yeah, well, I saw, uh, just before we went on the air, uh, Jason Stark was tweeting that the Cubs are looking at long-term, in the trade market right now, they're looking at long-term solutions and eyeing maybe the Rays, because the Rays have a number of, cost-controlled starters who would be appealing. Chris Archer, Matt Moore, uh, Jake Odorizzi. So I guess I could, if you got Archer, maybe he slots in above and then maybe Lackey, Lackey or Hendricks because the odd, odd man out. But it's it doesn't seem like an obvious fit. And then the Rays are sort of interesting because they're this team that maybe could 
destroy the trade deadline if they decided to. You look at the teams that have fallen out of contention, and a lot of those teams are there for a reason, right? Like, you look at the Phillies, they've got good young players, they're not going to sell those, and they don't have maybe Helixson, right? They don't have a ton of veteran guys that they're going to get value for, and a lot of the teams are like that. The Braves are kind of like that. I think the Twins are kind of like that. The Rays, they, like you said, they've got that whole rotation. They've got Alex Colomay, who's having a great year uh, in the bullpen. They've got Steve Pierce, who would fit a ton of teams as a lefty masher, can play a bunch of different positions. If you really want to get wacky, you can talk about Evan Longoria, though I don't really see that happening. Uh, that is a team, if they wanted to, could blow it all up and be right back in contention next year, right? Maybe? Because they could get a ton for those guys. They'd probably have to get guys who might be a couple years away, but they, could, they could really reload for... You know, 18, 19, et cetera. Yeah, I think they may, may have to take a, take a step back, but it's, sure. but you'll it's still fun have to Blake, think about. You'll still have Blake Snell, right? You'll still have a couple of these guys coming up through the farm system. Uh, I think they are the team that if they wanted to, they could really go nuts. And uh, if there's any team who's going to like kind of make that move, I think it might be them. Do you think that if they, you know, they've been, Archer's been linked to the Dodgers. Do you think that there's a scenario where they could get Urias back for? I don't think so. I think, I think if the Dodgers were going to trade Urias, it would have to be for, like, Chris Sale, if only because Chris Sale's pitching well now. And Archer, you know, kind of not. It's not really his best season. I think you can't trade for a guy like that and not be certain what he's going to give you this year and just look for the long term. They, the Dodgers are going to trade him. It's got to be for, like, a win-right-now guy. Speaking of Chris Sale, the team that he's been linked to most is one of the more interesting teams in baseball right now, which is the Texas Rangers. Texas Rangers are still in first place in the AL West, but, and I discovered this today and it's blew my mind, have a worse run differential than the Angels. Who does that say more about? Honestly, I'm not even sure at this point. <laughs> the, Angel, the, the Rangers have a plus two run differential right. as of recording, and the Angels are plus five. The Rangers are in last place 13 games or 12 and a half games behind the Rangers. Well, I, thought, I think we talked about the Rangers like a month ago. Uh, when I, I wrote about this, and I, I, boy, did I get Rangers fans real mad at me. Because I said at the time, this is like the last day of June or whatever I wrote this, that Rangers were a pretty good team, no doubt. I picked them to win the division this year, I think. But if you looked at the roster, there wasn't really anybody having a great season other than Ian Desmond and other than, you know, Cole Hamels, right? Those are the two standout guys. Everybody else has been injured, having okay seasons. Like, the, 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 some of the parts didn't really add up, you know what I'm saying? And so what I said was at the time, they were getting a little bit, you know, I hate to use the word luck, but they were, they were performing well in the clutch situations, right? They were performing well at the spots that would lead to more wins, which is great. That's kind of what we've seen the Royals do. We've seen the Orioles do that. The only thing is there's no evidence that that is it's sticky, right? Just because you have been clutch does not mean you will be clutch. And uh, that's exactly what's happened. Now, they've had injuries. That's fine. But, you know, since I wrote that, they're 7 and 16. And uh, I think it's, it's sure they're injuries, but also they're just not being as clutch. They're not winning the games in the big spots. I mean, they still are in, in, in Fangraph's clutch score for hitting. They're still number one. Overall. Overall. But over the last 30 days, they're, they're not. And uh, pitching especially. That's yeah. where it's been. They, uh, so they need a starter. Or more, they need a bullpen piece or several. And, uh, you know, I think, I wonder if Joey Gallo is going to be the guy that gets him there. Knowing John Daniels' MO, I kind of think they're going to do it. I, I mean, like the Chris Sale stuff. It's not going to be Sale. You don't think so? That's not going to be. I don't think the White Sox will trade Sale. But I think you're right. I think they're not going to, you can't really trust Darvish. You can't go into a playoff series with, with Cole Hamels and Trug emoji, right? <laughs> like, you got to, they'll get somebody. And if, they have know. the, I mean, between Gallo, as you mentioned, Lewis Brinson, Players who are not yet on the yeah. big league roster, but could. Have well, Gallo is. Gallo got called. He got called homer yesterday, but he right. says he's not yet been an integral part. Right. I, I would. I love guys like him, from a just sort of. I think they're fun to watch. The three true outcomes guys. Oh, absolutely. Adam Dunn, Russell Brandy, but I, if I were the Red Rangers, he's a guy I would trade. That's a team where I could see Chris Archer, right? Because they they, they need a guy like that, not Chris Sale, but Chris Archer. Um, so I can't wait to see what's going to happen. So Monday is the trade deadline day. 
And uh, I'll actually be at MLB Network in the afternoon on MLB Now at the exact time the trade deadline is happening. So that's going to be a whole mess of fun, and I'm really looking forward to that. So uh, that's our show. Thanks to our guest, Seth Lugo. Thank you, Matt Myers. I'm Mike Petriello. This has been the StatCast Podcast. We will catch you next week.